1: I slipped my pinky into his and said, it's our secret, right? He nodded. I won't tell. On that night, we became each other's secret keepers. He kept mine, and I kept his. What was the secret? We'll find out in just a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer welcoming you to our 25th year here at MindTalk. Today's guest, Susan E. Casey, wears a number of hats. She's a writer, a mental health clinician, a life coach, and a bereavement group facilitator. But the hats she wears today is a, are a dual one. She has written and talks about her journey with the stages of grief. Susan Casey, welcome to Mind Talk.
0: Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here with you.
1: Well, thank you. Now, Susan, you have written a book that is entitled "Rock On: Mining for Joy in the Deep River of Sibling Grief." Tell me about the title.
0: Well, my brother's name. I lost my younger brother uh, on Valentine's Day in 2014, and his nickname was Rocky. His birth name was Brian, um, <clears throat> and Really, my journey, writing my way through my grief, uh, was being able to find joy again and, and feel, feel joy again because after his death, um, it was such a dark period of time in my life and I'm, I'm typically such an optimistic person and I, I really didn't know if I was going to be able to feel that, that depth of joy again. It was, it was scary. So that's where the title comes
1: from. You know, as I hear you uh, describe yourself as having written your way through the grief, I often uh, recommend to, to my clients that writing as a tool along the path of healing is a really powerful one. And, you know, sometimes when I initially make the recommendation, folks look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm in too much pain to write. Uh, so it was actually very understandable and good to hear you characterize it as writing your way
0: through it. Yeah, and in fact, as a clinician, I, um, I've taught a bunch of classes on, uh, to other clinicians of giving writing activities to their clients um, who have severe trauma backgrounds. So, And I also wrote my critical thesis on, um, on writing through trauma and worked with kids. And a juvenile justice system, teaching a writing course, all around this idea of the power of writing through our traumatic experiences that we have in our life. It's very powerful.
1: Absolutely. Susan, how did your studies in social work and, well, you know what, let me back up a bit. I I, I want you to introduce us to your brother, Rocky. Who was he?
0: Well, he probably is one of the most charismatic people I had ever known in my life. And he had this deep, deep, uh, just this free spirit for adventure. And, you know, in the book, I talk about how he expanded my life um, from from when he moved over to Bali, Indonesia, um, to after his death when he died in Hong Kong and all of these places and experiences that I had because of him and who he was, you know, and he he was deeply sensitive and funny and he was just, he was a wonderful human being. And like all of us, you know, he had his flaws uh, and I write about those in the book too. Um, But he, he just, I don't know. He just brought so much to my world and, and after his death, uh, you know, It'll be six years in February, and I still can't believe sometimes that he's gone. Mm. And
1: when you write about him in the book, and even as you're speaking about him right now, there is such a powerful sense of connection and grief and joy all at the same time that he was in your life. Uh, in the way that he was, for the time that he was,
0: yes, yeah. yes, yeah, that's all true. And I, I, I hope, I, I hope I actually don't cry during this interview. Um, but you know, when anybody asked me about who my brother was, he is so hard to uh, to explain because he just had, he was just, he just sort of was this bigger than life personality, and he wasn't afraid of anything. Um, you know, and. I mean, how many people just up and move thousands and thousands and thousands of miles away from family, which which was also hard for him, too, at times. Um, I referenced my mother's stroke uh, in the book. And, you know, that was really that was probably one of the most difficult challenges that we had. And and he he had been here and flew home, flew back to Bali. And my mother had a stroke. Um, And he turned around and had to fly right back. Um, And I know that for him, it was hard for him, and it was hard for me that he wasn't here with us during that very tumultuous and tragic time um, after her stroke.
1: But, you know, it also speaks to the person that he was, because there, as you very well know, there are certainly family members who would not have flown an hour uh in in response to a family member's illness and he certainly flew more than an hour and several thousand miles to come right back to be at mom's side
0: well i can tell you that with all with the layovers and whatnot it's a 33 hour trip um it's it's a very long long trip and he, he, he didn't even have his suitcase. I mean, he flew back with the clothes on his back. And, and I think I write in the book that he had to wear my dad's clothes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you know, and he was, I mean, he was the spa director for four seasons in Bali. So, you know, that just tells you a little bit about his sensitivity. And, you know, he'd come in and, and you know, give my mom pedicures uh you know when she was in rehab and he was he's he was just a lovely human being and you know i i talk about this too and i know everybody has very different spiritual beliefs but so i i feel like he's with me all the time and and my mom just passed in in march and i i feel like i don't know i just i feel like they're together and and they're with me
1: You know, as you describe one of his jobs, and he certainly had more than one, as a spa Mm -hmm. director at the Four Seasons in Bali, it almost Mm -hmm. sounds like a dream job that people aspire to, can't imagine as real, and certainly can't imagine that they would ever have it. And
0: yet there he was. (laughs) Yeah, and he loved it. And people loved him. He was so generous. I mean, after his death, just the post that his, his colleagues, the people that worked for him wrote about what he gave to them and who he was and just his generous spirit. And he just was so loving and kind and, and beautiful. He was just, he was physically, he was beautiful and, um, and spiritually he was. And yeah, it's just, it's just who he was and what he embodied. And, and part of that, which I talk about in the book as well, um, you know, as I, I, you know, he made some mistakes as we all do. And because of his deeply sensitive, compassionate heart, he he couldn't forgive himself for some of those mistakes. Um,
1: One of the things that you talk about uh, is your reaction and his reaction to his decision to separate from his wife of five years I believe as she was pregnant Um, and that was hard for for everyone
0: yeah that that was a very very uh very hard time in fact we were together for 10 years and she was uh four months pregnant when he asked her for a divorce and that was one of those that was one of those decisions he made that he never could really forgive himself for, um and I think that's partly partly why he left and 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 moved so far away uh, because he really grappled with the guilt that he felt around leaving his wife and his son you and t- then of course, yes, I'll oh, go ahead. no, please continue. Well, I was going to say, and then because he was so far away and Kristen remarried, um, you know, he was asked to give up his parental rights because his son deserved to have a father um, in all of those ways that a child needs a father. And that was one of the most, I would say that's one of the most traumatic things um, that happened for him. Uh, when, when and, and that was one of those Late night calls when he could barely, um, he could barely get the words out because he was, he was just so, so torn up about having to make that decision. And he made that decision for his son and what was best for his son.
1: Yeah. You talked about your studies in social work school and the social justice issues uh, that you really. Delved into while you were there, so in in that context and recognizing that we're all human, your brother, as you were just saying, did some things that the average human being would have some real judgments about. Um, mm. You know, get leaving his wife, leaving his wife while she was just at the beginning of her pregnancy, later on there was drug use. Um, How did you find a way to accept him as he was without judgment, particularly given your clinical background? And I say particularly because clinically you would really understand the impact of his self-talk and his behavior on him and others including his wife, his second wife, and the family. How did you navigate all of that?
0: Wow, that's a really great question. You know, I guess I think my whole life, and and certainly um, what drew me to social work, is this deep desire to help people on their path to live, uh, better quality of life. And I think partly I have made so many mistakes in my own life, and which I think has helped me in this field. It is not, it is my belief, it is not our place to judge human beings. Like I said, we're human, which, which, which we are inherently flawed. We're here to learn and to grow. And so when Rocky was making these decisions, they were painful to hear. Um, and at the very same time, it was his path, it's his journey. And because of that deep belief that, that, I, that we're here to, to grow, which I believe is spiritually, um, it, was, it wasn't hard for me to not judge him, I guess is the best way to put it, um, because it's, that's not helpful. The only thing that I could do to love him through his pain and his journey was to sit in it with him. And if I've learned anything from this grief walk, it's that we can't, you know, people can give you tips on how to make the grieving process better, but really it's a, it's a solo journey and we all go through it in our own way. And, and, and running bereavement groups, the only thing we can do is hold people through their pain. We can't make it better. We can't expedite the process. We can't do any of those things, but God, we all need somebody to hold us in that space because love really is the only thing that heals. And so that's what I tried to do. I just tried to love him through it. Um, and I can't say there weren't times I wasn't angry at him. I was, I, there. you know, and did I want him to make different decisions? Yes, Absolutely. But, again, it was, it's, you know, we're, we're all here living, living our lives and doing the best we can with where we are. Um, and that probably is why I love working with people so much. Mm-hmm.
1: You you heard me describe, actually, quote uh, from Rock On when you describe the, the time that you and Rocky first and then for almost forevermore, held each other's secrets, and that's so powerful. But then you talk much later uh, in the book about your awareness of his drug use, and you said Mm -hmm. that you couldn't hold his secret. And what struck me about that is how often, just as human beings, we agree to a secret and then at Mm -hmm. some point really start to believe that we can't hold it, but we've agreed to it, but we can't agree to it. How did you go through that for yourself? What guidance can you offer people who find themselves at that
0: crossroad? Well, I think I think it's very similar to, um, you know, in our field, that when, you know, when we have a client or a patient that, is creating harm to themselves or to somebody else, um, the confidentiality is null and void. And so for me, I can hold, I hold many secrets for so many of my friends, but it's when it's, um, when it's harmful, if it's harmful to them or it's harmful to somebody else. And with Rocky's drug use, I was terrified he was going to OD on cocaine. I mean, he, you know, he really, um, in, in this one place where he was working, you know, he was dealing with very wealthy people, and he was sort of flying in the high life. And I just couldn't hold that secret, because I was terrified that he was going to die. Um, and of course, he did, but not from drugs. Uh, and that was, you know, and then in the book, I talk about, in order to save himself, and get off drugs, he ended up taking a spa director role on a cruise ship. And that's really what um, Helped to make that transformation, where he was able to, um, where he was able to stop using. Mm.
1: You talk about his. I mean, there's so much that you talk about in Rock On that we're not going to be able to talk about today. But I, I'd really like for you to share what it was like for you when Rocky made the decision to remarry but also to remarry someone from an entirely different culture from what you grew up in and what, obviously, Rocky grew up in. Were you concerned? Were you joyful? Were you all of the above, none of the above?
0: Well, it's interesting. That also was quite a process for me because, you know, he talked about he never thought that he would uh, remarry, and he met, uh, his wife in Bali and she was Balinese. Um And I was very concerned at first. And, you know, of course I hadn't met her. And then I met her and I, I thought she was, you know, just the sweetest little thing. And, and he seemed so happy, happier than I had seen him in years. Mm. And, you know, but I, but I talk pretty openly and honestly about my relationship um, with his wife. And it. It did deteriorate uh, after his death. Um, I am still confused as to wh- as to why, and and I and I think I portray that my confusion in the book, um, and it was deeply painful because he had a daughter, um, with you know with with his wife, and so I no longer have a relationship with with either one of them, and that's painful, um, and it was yeah and that's what that's what i'll say i mean I, like i said i write pretty candidly about yes. about that deterioration and i never under, i still to this day don't don't know if it is if it was cultural um and that we really just didn't understand how to communicate with each other um but i still you know it's it's a deep regret of mine um that that we that we do not have a relationship And, and, you know,
1: as I was reading through literally the ups and downs of their relationship, you know, I began to think, okay, you know, is this cultural? Is this a mental health issue? How does Mm -hmm. that culture think about or even acknowledge mental health issues? So it does get to be a bit of a whirl in terms of how Mm -hmm. to understand what's going on while still struggling and suffering with what's going on.
0: Yes, that is beautifully put. It was a whirl. That's, that is exactly what it felt like because I had, I, I flew over there, me and my oldest brother, you know, flew to Hong Kong and, and, uh, and, and that was such a harrowing trip in and of itself. Sometimes that feels like a a dream that I walked through. Um, And so there were just so many different things that happened. And, and, you know, even while I was over in Hong Kong, and then we flew with ashes back to Bali. Um, so it was confusing, and 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 it was confusing because at the very same time, I was in this deep grief. I actually, I would say, I was in shock still when mm. when I when I went on that trip. Um, it was just so much to take in, and 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 so. Um, Yeah, so that's what I would say. It was just it was it was confusing and it was deeply painful uh, what transpired between the two of us.
1: And and it's not as though the rest of your life was peaches and cream. I mean, certainly you were dealing with your own family, but you were also dealing with the illness of your mom, uh, the Mm -hmm. aging of your dad. I mean, it's a life can be a whole bunch.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there was, and like I said, sometimes it all feels, I don't know, some of it just feels so surreal, and and, and I think that the only thing that really saved me during that time, I started, I started chronicling my grief on my blog. I didn't know at that point I would actually write a book, um, but the response to those from people in grief uh, led me to this idea that I needed to write this book. And as you know, I interviewed so many people um, who had some very um, tragic stories yes. around the death of their siblings.
1: That's one of the things that was so interesting about it. You were writing about your own experience, but also uh, sharing with the the reader and today with the listener the experiences Susan, I I was struck by so much that you wrote and certainly the way in which you wrote it. But one of the things that I was particularly struck by uh, was your comment that after the loss of your brother, you stopped saying to people, I'm so sorry for your loss. Why? Mm.
0: Because it just feels trite to me. And, you know, I think that after... um, that after you experience a death, a deep, a deep, deep loss. I don't, I actually don't think there's really anything anybody can say. I don't think we know what to say. Mm. Um, And I think the very first things people say is, I'm sorry for your loss, which they are. Um, But I think for me, for me now, when there's a death, I experienced it so differently of it doesn't even matter if I read about it in the paper. I know that that person's life has changed forever mm-hmm. in that instance. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's like, it's, it's giving prayers, it's giving love it's And, and, and acknowledging the depth of that loss. Um, and understanding that, and I write this too, that, you know, after two weeks, people go back to their own lives. Everybody sort of descends on your world when you have this loss. And I talked specifically to how sibling loss is, is its own kind of loss. Um, and then people disappear. And not because they're not loving, not because they're not kind, because life marches on. And one thing I've realized through my, through my own experience and also with the bereavement groups, there is something about the four month mark. I don't know what it is um, that people hit a wall. And I think part of it is that after a death, you're very busy doing things, you know, planning the memorial, um, tidying up all of these loose ends that happens when somebody passes. And then you are just with yourself and the the, the world goes on around you. And I, I, at least for me and i and then and then it's silence and it's quiet and it just knocks you down and and i think it takes around 4 months before the reality of that loss really hits you that this is really real and it's really true and it really happened
1: you know one of the things that that i often think about for people who are employed is the decisions, and I understand why, but the decisions that employers make about what connection actually constitutes a acceptable, if you will, loss such that you can take time off from work. You know, if you lose a pet, mm, not so much. If you lose a parent, okay. Mm-hmm. But then it's such a short time. And uh, again, you know, we understand it, but it just seems so... Traumatic almost to the person who has experienced the loss that they've now got to truncate it in a way that is just unhealthy.
0: Absolutely. And absolutely. Most places give you three days. I was extraordinarily fortunate in my work where, um, you know, they gave me the time lock that I needed, but then I, you know, because it took where well, I was gone for three weeks when I traveled over to Hong Kong and Bali and then. But when I returned, I realized that I was in no condition to return to work. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I was a mess. And, um, and part of being a mess was my deep worry over my parents. You know, I thought my mother was going to have another stroke. I mean, the whole thing was terrifying on so many different levels. But I ended up leaving my job altogether. I took a three-month leave of absence, and then I left. I was with that I was with that organization for 14 years. Wow. It was, you know, and I, and I had to leave. I had to leave. I could not stay. And I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but I knew that I and I took and I was fortunate again, you know, my husband was very supportive. He's like, "Take take the time you need, write your book." Um, and so that was just that was a tremendous gift to me. And so every morning I would go into my office and I would relive his death over and over and over. Mm. And when I say I cried every single day for two years straight, it took me three years to write that book. Mm. Um, but it's amazing that I can read it now and not cry. And that feels, that feels like a, a, a beautiful signpost that, you know, I have really walked through this. i walked this journey. And I'll that, miss him forever yeah. but you know grief just changes over time and so
1: and clearly yeah. healing is possible healing does not mean forgetting it means healing and right. it is possible
0: exactly it is and I am living proof of that <laughs> because if you asked me then i thought my world, my life is never going to be the same but just the opposite of, has happened my my appreciation for life has deepened Um, for my relationships for the people in my life I I don't take anything for granted anymore Um, I don't take my own life for granted anymore
1: Susan how can people get more information about rock on
0: sure they can go to my website Uh, my website is just my name it's susanekc.com and
1: can you spell your name for us Yep, it's
0: S-U-S-A-N-E-C-A-F-E-Y. And if people want to reach me by email, um, I created an email specifically for this book, and it's miningforjoy at iCloud.com.
1: Wonderful. Susan, I'm so sorry that we're out of time. The book is brilliantly and poignantly written, and I do encourage listeners to take a look for themselves. Thank you so much, Susan.
0: Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day.
1: You as well. And folks, thank you for joining me on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you regularly and can be heard on several platforms, including iTunes, SoundCloud, Alexa, the Mind Talk app. But you can always pick it up at on demand at mindtalk.org. That is M Y N D T A L K dot O R G. Mind Talk is brought to you as an informational and entertaining conversation, and it is not intended to replace any work that you may be doing or choose to do with a clinical professional. If you'd like to email me at pamela at mindtalk.org, again, that's P A M E L A at M Y N D T A L K dot org. I would be delighted to hear from you. I look forward to your joining me next time on Mind Talk. And remember always if it's unacceptable, it's unacceptable. <music>